This episode of The Working Experience is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of children's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy leaving money under their child's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into your Still Believe video to amaze your children. You can tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the Tooth Fairy and Santa and then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is free to download and also has in-app purchases. So for $3, you can catch the Tooth Fairy in your home. The Still Believe app is available for the iPhone on the App Store and Android on Google Play. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. And that's S-T-I-L-L-B-E-L-I-E-V-E dot C-O. The Still Believe app was created by my digital media agency, One Circle Media. One Circle creates content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms, servicing networks, studios, brands, and Fortune 500 clients. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at OneCircleMedia.com or DM me on Instagram at John Brancaccio. And that's J-O-H-N-B-R-A-N-C-A-C-C-I-O. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoy this episode of The Working Experience. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Dan Mori. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Dan started out in the military, specifically the Army, then uh, had tried his hand as a used car salesman or and a new car salesman. Uh, very interesting. We kind of delve deep into uh, the whole uh the whole car thing, uh, specifically buying cars and what cars mean as wealth status symbols. Uh, and then he went on to uh, work at Employment Solutions. He was actually one of the, the co-founders, which is an employment uh, solution, basically helping companies hire people. And then he also started um, a company called SpinGig, which helps, uh, again, in the employment industry, which helps people fill um, hospitality jobs. And he also helped start uh, an incubator at Binghamton University. Uh, very interesting. Uh, Dan was down in Florida, uh, living the life nice and warm uh, while it's freezing up here in New York. So I hope you enjoy the episode. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. Did you stay late, Bob? Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. living his toenails at his Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience. I am here with Dan Mori. Dan, can you say hello to our listeners? Hey everybody, good to be with you. Great. And so now, Dan, are you are you down in Florida or are you up here in New York? I am. Thankfully, I'm down in Florida. My friends in New York have been keeping me up to date on what's going on with the blizzard and I made the wise choice to stay south. It was a very wise choice. It was very, very cold up here in New York. Um, yesterday, it got down into the single digits. And now today, it's probably in the mid-teens. We didn't, we didn't get, we, we got warm weather 
and then a, uh, a rainstorm came in and then we got the cold weather. So if the cold weather met the rain, it would have been a nasty blizzard, but we kind of, we, we kind of missed that. But I think up in Boston, you know, further up north, they got some nasty uh, snow and I think they're continuing to get snow. Uh, but so Florida is the place to be right now. I envy you. It is. So it is. It's fantastic, actually. And I, I feel bad saying this, maybe even a little embarrassed, John, is that, you know, it was 70 degrees, 68, 70 degrees yesterday. And because I've been here and, and acclimated a little bit, it, it almost felt a little bit chilly. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny, though, is like when I go down to um, to Miami or I go to L.A., that I'll see people wearing like heavy coats or hats and it'll be 50 degrees. And, you know, in New York, in Boston, Toronto, like 50 degrees at this time of the year is summer-esque weather. Yeah. Like you, you could literally go outside without a coat and just kind of stroll around. But in the warmer climates, like 50 degrees to you guys because you're, you're so acclimated to 70 degrees is is like a winter chill and you ha you have to you have to bulk up it's it's very funny it's all relative right oh it's it's so so much so so dan um if you can give our listeners uh, a bit of a bit, bit of background and just kind of a short bio so we can just put everything into context yeah yeah for sure so I, uh, I actually grew up out in rural America, went to a, a small, small uh, public school, and uh, literally so small that I, I graduated with like 26 kids in my class. And um, we really kind of grew up, uh, you know, maybe it was the top side of poor, the, the bottom side of the middle class, not really sure. I uh, didn't have a lot of prospects. I didn't like school. You know, I, I wasn't the smartest kid in class. I really wasn't a gifted athlete or anything like that. So I felt like I didn't really, I had a lot of aspiration, but not a lot of opportunity. And so I took uh, what I thought was a great opportunity for me at the time. And I joined the, the army reserves and uh, provide a little bit of money for college. If, if, and when I decided to go and, and, and pursue that route, but it was something for me at the time that uh, still a lot of discipline in me. And, you know, I was a bit of a, maybe a rebellious kid. Uh, I was always just kind of pushing the limits. Um, and going in the military, I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about, you know, what, what I'm capable of. Uh, I spent a, a little bit of time on active duty, but all in all, I, you know, after nine years total of reserve and, and a little bit of active duty time, I, I realized that it wasn't really the path for me. I wanted to, to go out in the private sector and, and do something in the business world. And, um, so when my time was up with the military, I, I didn't sign a new contract and I really, I landed in the civilian world, not knowing what I was going to do. I didn't have a college degree. I had taken some community school courses and just realized that that just wasn't the path for me. And uh, I started uh, selling cars of all things. And it's funny because uh, there's a part of me that hates being the butt of the worst jokes out there with all the used car salespeople <laughs> stuff, you know, but I'll tell you, John, it was a fun job. I, I actually, I, I enjoyed the job itself. It's one of the most fun jobs that, that I've had. I like cars, uh, but I really like the opportunity to connect with people and learn how people process that purchasing decision because it's really, you know, it's, it's one of the top three major financial decisions that a person's going to make in their life, you know, when you think about it. Right, yeah. And helping them navigate that process was, was enjoyable. I met some great people. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hated the industry. I just, it's a, it is a grinder industry, meaning that like, there's no gratitude in the industry. Like, you know, management was just always about what have you done for me lately? And, you know, they weren't open or receptive to, to new ideas. And it just seemed like it was a stagnant industry with a low ceiling. And it was just, uh, it was depressing, you know? So I love the job. I didn't really like the environment that I worked within. And I'm sure that not all, you know, car dealerships are that way, but, um, Thankfully for me, it actually led me just to want to leave. And I had this, I've had this, I had this long dream to be a pilot and I decided to quit my job in epic fashion, which is a story for a completely different day. And I headed south. I really sold most of what I had. I, I kept what, you know, the, what I needed in my vehicle. I headed south and I went to pursue flight school and I actually came down to this area of Florida to do it. It didn't really work out very well. 
This is going back like 12, 13 years ago. Uh, and as it turns out that, you know, I actually landed in an opportunity. I, I linked up with a couple of friends of mine that were just getting started with growing an employment agency called Employment Solutions in Elmira, New York, you know, a small city in upstate New York. And uh, they really, they, they wanted to bring somebody on that had a kind of a knack for business development. And uh, that person was me. And so the three of us, we, we incorporated Employment Solutions in, in March of 2007. And uh, we made a go of it. We really didn't have, my one partner uh, had, you know, some experience in the staffing industry. My, myself and my other partner didn't. And we just made a go of it. We just tried to figure out what do we need to be in the recruiting industry to companies. And we just started asking companies that, like, what is it that you need from a staffing partner? What is it that you need from a recruiting partner? And we just listened. You know, we didn't want to inject any of our own ideas. We just wanted to listen to them. And we started to build a company based on what our customers wanted, not even knowing that that's like really the ideal way to build a company, right? Uh, we were just kind of just ask, trying to figure it out as we went along. And as it turns out, you know, John, in 2007, 2008, great times to be in recruiting. You know, the employment industry was humming along. You know, uh, companies were, they were, you know, flush with cash, paying companies good money to help them recruit. And we started to grow. Now, I'll say that 2009, 10, 11, 12, not the best years to be in the employment industry. Obviously, the recession really decimated our industry, and it almost did the same to us. My, my two partners and I, we really, uh, you know, we sat there and said, you know, maybe we need to camp and weather the storm early on. And three months in, that just wasn't it. So we took it as an opportunity to grow, and we started acquiring companies, and we've acquired, uh, you know, four at this point uh, over the years. That's really helped us expand from that one tiny office in upstate New York, all the way to, to be a national recruiting agency. You know, we've got 11 brick and mortar locations, but we operate in, in 28 states. So it's been a, that's been a fun ride with a lot of stories. I'm sure we'll get into some of them, but also along that journey, you know, I've had a couple uh, segues, a little side hustles. I've also started a software company that I'm really excited about called SpinGig, and it's really automated recruiting for the hospitality industry. I just, I saw it as a big need, you know, hospitality has got a major turnover challenge and uh, you know, they really need something that's a low cost solution to help them connect with, you know, their, their potential employees. So, uh, myself and a friend went out and built this platform and we just got to market in, in November. And, uh, so I'm super excited about, you know, what that company can do and how many, you know, uh, restaurants, you know, hotels, bars, that stuff, we can help connect with the right people. Uh, and then also a project that was important to me from a, a philanthropic standpoint that just, uh, I want to say it didn't really end. It's 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 sort of uh, kind of closed up the main phase, but I got a chance to to work with Binghamton University to open their business incubator, and I think there's a a pretty big wave of you know business incubation startup communities that that feel sweeping the nation. And you know Binghamton is a great community, and they said, hey, we want to you know we want to join in this, and we want to create more startups and be a good startup ecosystem. And so they wanted to to create an incubator, and they invited me to to join their team and, and, and help them get the building open, architect some of the programs, you know, help them, you know, build out the right team to run it for, you know, succeeding me. And um, I was able to do that. And we were able to, to really recruit a lot of companies and recruit a lot of great EIRs and, you know, help companies get funding. And, and in the first, I did that project for two years, just closed uh, in October last year. And it was amazing, you know, helping some companies get started. I mean, in the two years that I was directly involved with it, you know, we help companies raise millions of dollars of, of startup capital and help them grow and hire employees. And, uh, and it was pretty awesome to, to do that, to be a part of kind of giving back to Binghamton, which is just a, a great, great community, great university. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's a little bit about me and what I've been involved in. And, and now that that project is subsided and there's a great, you know, successor team in place running that program, and I'm sure it's going to take it to even new heights. You know, I'm still involved mentoring a couple, you know, pretty awesome startups and and still actively involved in, in the, the leadership of, of my two ventures. And we're making a go of it. Great. <clears throat> there's there's a lot to unravel there, Dan. That was that was a really good, uh, good bio. So let's um, let's start with um, the town that you grew up in. So you graduated so you graduated high school and the class size was 26 people? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's shocking. Most people think that's like a private school. Yeah. So where was it in uh, in the U.S.? 
Yeah, so that was uh, it was in upstate New York. It's actually a tiny little public school. It's still in existence today called Bradford Central School. And uh, probably the closest town or, you know, or city that people might have heard of nationally is Corning. Uh, which is you okay. Know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You know, people know the 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 Fortune 100 company that resides there, and uh, I reside. I mean, I I still I split time in Corning, New York. That's really where I hail and call my hometown. But yeah, I, I went to Bradford, and it was a it's a fun experience. Uh, but yeah, definitely small small rural school. Wow, that's crazy. Um, so then, okay, so then you, uh, so then after high school, you enlisted in the army. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Um, do you know, um, do you follow or have you read any of David Goggins books? No, I've not actually. Oh, you should, um, you should really, after this podcast, you should, uh, you should search for him on Instagram and look, he just wrote a book. I can't remember the name of it. He's basically like this really hardcore ex Navy seal. And he talks about, you know, discipline and motivation and how most people give up after, you know, you know, after like 40%, they still have a lot in the tank and they give up. The guy, the guy is literally insane. He's run like ultra marathons, bad waters and stuff. He, he's, he's, the guy's a lunatic, but he's very entertaining. You should, you should I will. Yeah, up. no, I'll, I definitely, I love following, you know, people like that, that, you know, they just get it. There's a whole, most people have a whole other level that they don't even know about. And that's really, that's what the, the basic training in the military experience really taught me is there was a whole other level within me that I didn't even know was there. And, you know, one of the, one of the quotes that resonates in my mind that I learned through the military journey is that the mind will quit way before the body, you know, and if you can, if you can grapple with that, you know, if you can basically teach your mind or train your mind to not give up so easily or to take its cue from your body or whatever you're enduring, uh, you can find that that new level or that next level that'll take you a whole lot further. But yeah, there's a uh, people do they just they just quit too early. They 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 think adversity yeah, is a it, wall. It's it's so true. It, it really is. You know, somewhere in the order of eighty percent mental, twenty percent physical. Um, I um, I ran uh, at a very competitive high school, and then I ran Division One college at Fordham University. And it was, I was a middle distance, long distance runner. And, you know, you, look, you, there, there is the physical component, right? You have to train. But in order to get to the next level, it was mental, you know? And you, you could look at like running a marathon. Like you have to put in the work, but then met, you then have to overcome those mental barriers where your, you know, your mind starts, you know, going through like, ah, oh, this is getting tough. You should quit. You know, the, the inner voice kind of talks you out of it yeah. and you have to have that, um, that mental fortitude and that, that discipline to, to push through. And, and a lot of people are lazy, they're weak, um, and they just don't, you know, they just, they don't push through that. And you, and you can look at that in terms of, you know, athletic performance, you can look at in terms of that of equally in business. So Dan, in so just kind of walk through of like how um, you know being in the army has helped you uh, from like a discipline standpoint to this very day. Like you know you you started you I was a used car salesman, uh, then you went to you know try to pilot out, then you started employment solutions. You've got this e-commerce company spin spin gig. You started up to incubator. You got kind of a lot of uh, irons in the what, what is that term? Irons, irons in the, the fire. fire. I know. I sound like a yeah. Guy irons in the fire. I don't know what that's I want it. to do with my life, right? Is that that's what it sounds like when, when I hear you say it, John? <laughs> well, well, you know what? It's it's the most interesting people that I know have a story, have a life story like you. It, it's. It's not this, you know, okay, go to this school, you know, become a doctor and a lawyer, and then after, you know, 30 years, get the gold watch and then go down to Florida. The, the most interesting people are still kind of, and this is, and I'm speaking from experience, this is, this is, this is me, as I'm still discovering 
new aspects of myself and still testing myself in, in various endeavors, not, not just in the business world, but also, you know, pushing myself, you know, mentally, uh, physically to, um, to see, you know, it's kind of me against whatever obstacle I put myself up against to see if I can overcome that. And I think that there is, you know, unlike what society, you know, tells you or, you know, the message of society is there is a deep sense of, um, of happiness and of, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, achievement in, in, you know, taking obstacles and overcoming them. So you should almost seek out the hard stuff and the pain and then either fail or persevere. But either way, you're going to feel great about yourself in the process. It's not the outcome. I mean, it's good to win. Don't get me wrong. It's good to sell a company, make a lot of money, you know, finish a race. But within the, the doing, you learn really who you are. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. You know, I, I really do. And, you know, for me, there's a there's a couple things in there that are that are answers that cut to the core of me to your question about what did the military do for me? And, and how did that kind of shape it? You know, one, you know, in the military, I was I was always taught to improvise, improvise, adapt and overcome, right? That was kind of it. Like you just in the military, like they just teach you to you know, in their terms, embrace the suck. Like you're just going to face situations all the time that aren't ideal and they're not the way that you want it to be. And the reality is, is you just have to, you know, quickly accept it, that that's just the way that it is. You can't, you know, get all upset or emotional or complain and whine about it. You just have to accept the situation. This is what it is. You know, take that, the information about the situation to formulate your resolve and then determine how am I going to get through this or how am I going to get around it? And, you know, so I think for for me, you know, being able to to have that discipline, but that understanding about, you know, how life comes at you in the situations that, you know, you might encounter, initially you have little control over, but you have a lot of control over how you respond to it, you know, and if you if you just let the situation completely control you, you're giving up any opportunity that you might have to win. And, you know, for, so that's really what the military taught me, but kind of more about, you know, my ethos as to how I've attacked a lot of these things, because it is, you know, people would look at it and say, oh, that's irons in the fire, or that's scattered, or that's not actually disciplined. But, you know, there's a there's a couple things that drive me, John, and it's really, you know, I don't want to say it's self-motivated. I certainly am. But, you know, I, I guess I've never subscribed to the, the societally accepted model of a career. Like, I just, I've seen so many people work their entire lives at a job that brings misery to them that they hate just looking at retirement as the finish line and by the time they cross that finish line their bodies are broken they don't have the financial you know well-being to be able to even enjoy the golden years you know and that's just right you know that's just ludicrous to me and and i will say that you know a fortunate misfortune in my life was you know my my father passed away at the age of 49 and you know, he was one of my biggest cheerleaders and really kind of propped me up and, and just said, go live the life that you want to live. Go put your mark on this world, do good in this world, you know, but live life on your terms. And, um, you know, I've kind of instilled that as a, as maybe a, you know, a, my dying father's wish to me, but that's what I've done. You know, I'm not going to go sit there and build somebody else's dream, you know, and just you know, check the box and move on. That's just not who I am. Like, I, I want to make a difference in this world. I want to do it the best way that I know how, you know, and, and helping people through, you know, find meaningful careers through a recruiting industry and helping companies, you know, grow to that next level by helping them get the people they need to do so. Like, that's pretty, pretty important to me, you know? So, so I look at that and I just, I think about, you know, some of all, all the one-liners and guidance that my father gave me over the years. And, you know, he was certainly taken too early, but I was just, you know, I want to go make my mark on the world. So I'll take on a project that might seem out in left field as if you're looking at the, you know, who I am and what I do, like the incubator project, taking that on when I have, you know, a company that's still growing and a, and a startup, like some people might say that's ludicrous, but I look at that as a fantastic opportunity to do some good in a community that I love, you know, and that's, that's important to me, you know, and I've met some great companies that I've, 
helped mentor and helped learn from my own mistakes that's going to make them better down the road. You know, so uh, I, I think for me, it's I'm not afraid of the obstacle. I'm not afraid of, you know, what life throws at me. I don't have that that, you know, this is unsafe or this is risky gene for some reason. I just I kind of get at it. I face it. I try to do the best that I can to to improve or positively impact the people around me. And, and I also try to live life on my terms. So when I get to the end of my life, like I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to say, hey, I did good. I helped people and I lived life the way that I wanted to do it. No regrets. And that's that's just kind of yeah, the way and, I approach it. And Yeah. And you are, you know, one of the few. Uh, it Most people, you know, don't do that. They continue their, their life's journey out of fear, out of fear of the unknown. And what's, what's the most terrifying thing to me is regret is it's much, much better to have tried and failed than to not have tried at all. I think that's a quote. Maybe yeah. I stole that from someone. Um, but you know, and, and this is what this podcast is about and, and talking to individuals like yourself, Dan is, this is not spoken about, right? You turn on the news, you're watching TV shows, you're reading blogs. Nobody's talking about the fact that there are tens of millions of people in America, adults in America that despise their job. They absolutely hate going to work. And they're in this golden handcuff situation where they have the mortgage, they have the 2.2 kids, they have the dog, they have the car payments. And, you know, they went to college, they did all the right stuff and they were successful, but they're living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. They're getting hammered by healthcare costs. And they literally don't see a way out of it. You know, they have a, a jerk of a boss, you know, the commute sucks. There is a, there's a laundry list of stuff yet that person on paper looks like a success story. But, you know, if you sit down and talk with that individual, they, they're absolutely despising every second of their life. They're living for the weekends. And, you know, it's just like Groundhog Day, you know, day after day after day. And nobody is talking about this. And few people will say, you know what? I, I see that, that, you know, illusion for what it is and I'm going to go off and do my own thing or I'm going to go into the woods and, you know, paint and write poetry or I'm, or I'm going to go off the grid or I'm going to go to a third world country and live in it as an expat. Very, and very, very few people actually do that because society values, you know, monetary success and things like things are going to bring you happiness when in fact happiness and contentment not so much as happiness because i don't think that you know it you know you want you want to be happy but you you want to be content right you don't want to you don't always want to seek happiness because sometimes you know you feel like crap and then those happy moments you value more Right. So life is these series of up and downs. Um, society doesn't value the experiences, the, the family, you know, the travel or whatever that you hold that you want to do because you can't they can't sell you that. Right. They want to sell you a BMW. They want to sell you uh, the, the house. They want to sell you the car. And if all you need in life to be content is, you know, food and family and, you know, spending time together, you know, society falls, society doesn't fall apart, but the advertising, the capitalist society slowly starts to, to crumble. Not that I'm anti-capitalist. I'm just, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just painting a I'm, very I'm, wide picture. No, I'm, I'm in your camp on that one. And I, I do agree that, you know, the, uh, and I'm not anti-capitalist either. Obviously, uh, you know, I'm in business for myself and they're for-profit businesses. And I, you know, I do intend to, to make a lot of money, you know, in, in both endeavors. And, you know, but for me, I'm also not materialistic. You know, I'm, I'm not somebody that, in fact, it's, it's actually ironic that you say this. So my, my family, you know, one is the most important to me. It's the center. Like when I look at, you know, 
why I do all that I do, they're the center of the equation for me. And, you know, but, you know, we love to travel, like we love experiences, like that's what's meaningful to us, you know, and, you know, sometimes people, you know, they, they judge us based on how much we travel or what we do. And I'm okay with that because I genuinely, like, I don't care what I look like on paper to other people. Like that is of little significance to me. Like at the end of the day, like I, I care about how I feel about myself. Yeah, I certainly care about, you know, if I was a good husband, you know, a good father and a good son, like those are the, and a, and a good friend, like those are the things that, you know, matter to me and owning a Ferrari or a BMW or a Porsche, like none of those things can really help move the needle one way or the other on any of those criteria for me. So, but it's funny, I was just talking to my seven-year-old son yesterday, actually, we were you know, in this area of South Florida, there's a there's a lot of wealth and there's some amazing, amazing cars that drive around here. And I'm a car guy. Like, I love these cars, you know, and my son asked right. me, we were driving next to a, it was a Bentley. It was actually a pretty nice looking Bentley. And I was like, oh, it's a great car. And my son was asking me about it and I was kind of running the specs on him. And I was like, it's a very expensive car. And he's like, well, why don't you buy one? He goes, do you, do you have the money to buy it? And I was like, well, I mean, technically speaking, yes, we as a family could buy that car. I go, but realistically speaking, you know, that car is not designed to move a family of five as efficiently as is our Honda van, right? You know, and right, I right, go, right. you know, so I go, besides, I go, I love those cars. I go, I, you know, I would love to, you know, drive a Ferrari. I would love to, to drive a Lamborghini and, and those things. I go, but I don't need to own it to, to get what I need out of it. Like the only thing that I need out of those things is the experience. I go, I'll go rent one for a day. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'll have that experience and it's fulfilling to me. You know, I don't care uh, what other people think. And then my son, and this was a student, John, this blew my mind, actually. And this is, I know this is like not the working experience, but this is fun. He asked me, he goes, well, if you're only driving it for a day, aren't you sort of tricking people into thinking that you're rich? And I was like, (laughs) and I was like, it's, I go, how has marketing got to you that like, you think that we need to put on this facade? And I was like, I was like, I don't care if people know how much if they think we're rich or they think we're poor i go that doesn't matter to me i go you know i want to do it because it's a cool experience i like cars you know it's fun for me and i'm going to get some enjoyment out of it but you know that that enjoyment will eventually wane and you know i won't want to own that car you know so and right. so it's just you know but i explained to him i was like buddy it's about kind of getting out of life what you need to get out of it and what the people you care about you know need to get out of it and, and being there for them that's it. Like you don't need to be anything to anybody else. And so it is funny, like yeah. even at even a young age, they perceive that, you know, that materialistic need that is ingrained in our society. Yeah, it's funny. It's my I have I have two boys and they they've asked me similar questions in the past, like, Dad, why don't you get, you know, a Porsche or a Ferrari? And they see that as the, you know, if, if you've made it, like that car equates to wealth. And they don't, they don't understand that buying a car like that is a terrible financial decision. It, once you drive that car off the lot, it's dropping like 30%. It might even be more than for like a Bentley or Ferrari. Sure. The insurance on it is astronomical. It's incredibly impractical. For, for, I have a family of four and I have a Honda Pilot. I don't know. And you might have a Honda van or something. But we bought the Pilot because we know that you get in the car, you press the button, the car's going to turn on. All I got to do is change the oil and the tires. I can drive that car for 300,000 miles. Yeah, exactly. And zero, zero worries in my life, right? This is, and by the way, this is not a Honda commercial. Honda's not paying me to say this. But, but like, a, like a Ferrari, a Lamborghini is just a terrible, terrible investment. It makes a hell of a lot more sense, like you said, is to rent one for a day or to join like a car club where you could, you know, you have some sort of, uh, you know, you get three hours on the car because that's all you need. Because if you go and buy that Ferrari and that Lamborghini, it's like, sure, you're going to feel great, right? It's going to move that needle for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe in a couple of months. But eventually, and I can, I'll show you a guy who owns a four-year-old Lamborghini that has to take it to the exotic auto repair shop and has to pay $4,000 to replace the windshield wiper. Or, you know, the car door doesn't flip open correctly and it's a $15,000 job because 
that's the only mechanic that knows how to do it, and they've got to get the parts from Italy. It's a freaking nightmare. It's yeah. an, an absolute. So this dream car turns into a disaster. And most of the people, like statistically, who buy cars like that, except for like ultra wealthy people that are worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, they do buy cars like that. But for like athletes, right? who buy a car like that, they, you know, they've been shown that if they're not smart with their money, they're going to spend all their money. So they look flashy and then they look rich, but then they're poor and then they go bankrupt. And you and you even see it with, you know, like Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and then he was $30 million in debt. Um, who was the other guy that did... Uh, can't remember who's the other rapper. Oh, 50 Cent. 50 Cent at one point was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He invested in vitamin water. Uh, he bought Mike Tyson's old house in Connecticut. And then he filed for bankruptcy. And all these guys had, you know, they, Mike Tyson had a lion. You know, they all had Ferraris, Lamborghinis. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very much a status symbol. My son's also look at like getting a you know a nice car i own i own a honda pilot and a subaru outback is possibly the two cars that are the least and i'm also like a car guy too are probably like the, the you know screams family I, I won't i won't own a minivan that's where i draw the line but i have a, i have a station wagon and a honda pilot I, I I'm with you, man. Honestly, I uh, I so I, we've got a Honda Odyssey for the van, and I I don't mind the van. Honestly, it is an efficient people mover. And my my car that I use personally is you know a Toyota Highlander Hybrid, and it is it's one of the best vehicles I've ever owned. The thing it it runs so smooth, it's comfortable to drive. It actually will fit my family, you know. So it's I'm with you, and and that's, I, I just, and that's all you need. That's it, you know. And I look at it like those things. You can buy those things, but they create unnecessary obligation, just like your friend. Like it might be, it might be great to have it, and you feel good about it. You get that initial personal rush, like yeah, this feels good. But it's a slippery slope, John. Like after a while, you're going to start justifying it to yourself that like I need this because now people see me this way, and if I get rid of this Ferrari or get rid of this Porsche or get rid of this BMW and I go to a Toyota, like what are people going to think? You know? And it's like, like I just honestly, I don't even want to put myself into a situation where you know, I'm going to even have to concern myself with other people think about me. You know, I just, it's a slippery slope and I just, I choose not to play that game. Like I, like, like I said, it's gonna be life on my terms. And, you know, I would much rather, instead of having the obligation of keeping up with expensive things, I would much rather take that money and invest into better education for my children. I would rather invest in the travel and experiences and, and go see the world and go experience the world and do things that, you know, most people, they don't get the opportunity to, but it's, it, again, everything is life as a trade-off, you know, like I could go, you know, buy expensive things, but then, you know, we don't travel the world. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, buying expensive things makes people bad. Like that's, that's not an indictment on them. Like, you know, like Jay Leno with a car collection, like that's something that brings him joy. Like, I don't think Jay Leno collects all the cars that he does to show off to people. Like, I think that he genuinely enjoys the collection of those cars and he's got you know, one of the best collections in the world. And if people are really car people and that brings them enjoyment and they're doing it for self-fulfillment, like, like, I think that's great. I think where it gets a little bit sloppy or, or reckless is when you start doing it because you need other people to feel good about you. And, and I think that yeah, when you need other people to feel good weird. about you, you're just, you, you're not, I don't know, there, there's something missing within you that needs to be fixed, frankly. Yeah, that's where things fall apart. But like for like Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, I mean, you're talking about wealth that's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And this, it, you know, with, with those cars, like those old cars, I mean, you need a ton of money. Um, but those are investments. Those will actually increase in value, you know, like those old classic cars. And I think Jerry Seinfeld also has a massive collection yeah, too. Yeah, another good example, yeah. But, uh, I mean, those guys have, you know, wealth that's just, you know, beyond measure. But yeah, if you're looking, if you're trying to impress people or you're looking for validation, if you're looking for someone to validate you or a car or a house or whatever so that 
you know, people think that you're rich and you need that, that's not good. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna end badly. Anyway, I don't want to, I want to, yeah. I don't want to go too deep into this rabbit hole. I wanted to ask you about um, when you, so were you, you were a used car salesman? I sold both. I, I did sell new cars too, John. I was a, I was actually a Toyota guy. I, I went to work for Toyota. I sold new Toyota Scion uh, when that was a thing. And I certainly did sell used cars, which is why honestly, like I bought into to what Toyota is as a company. Like they've got some incredible practices, but that's why I'm a, I'm a Toyota guy. Uh, my wife preferred the Honda, but uh, again, not a Toyota commercial, but yeah, I did. I sold used and new cars. Great. And do you, did you have any, like, do you have any really funny stories, like crazy stories from those days? My gosh, those are a long time ago. Uh, I've not thought about those days in, uh, in a long time. Just like for, like for me, like going to the car dealership is excruciating. I just, and I'll, um, I'll negotiate, like I, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business owner. Like I, I negotiate every day with suppliers, with vendors, and, and I'm good at it. I'm good at negotiating and, you know, I basically want nothing in life. It's the, it's the best, you know, point to come. If you want to buy something, want nothing. Yeah. But even like someone like myself, when I go into a car dealership, I fall into the trap, right? There's the trap of you sit down with the sales guy that go back to the sales manager, you get back and forth. And before you know it, 90 minutes has passed by and I'm like, this is all I want to do. I know exactly what I want and, and, and you know, I want to buy this car. So now what I've done is I, 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 I figure out what exactly what I want. I test drive it and then I pick three dealerships within 20 miles of my house and I talk to the head sales manager and I negotiate with the head sales manager. I don't deal with any salesman. And then I get the price and I'm like, look, I'm going to come in with a bank check for this exact amount. I don't want any warranties. I don't want anything on. If at any point, in t- and I want to be in and out of there in 15 minutes. If at any point in time you try to sell me a warranty or an add-on for the car, I will rip the bank check up and I'll walk out the door. And that's how I bought my Subaru. That's how I bought my Honda Pilot. And it just cuts away all of this just this crap. And I know the dealerships, they don't make a lot of money on the actual sale. They make it on the service, right? which whatever that that's is what it is, but it's just like, and I'm sure people, you know, it's like you have to do it. You buy a car. It's just, it's just a horrific process. So it's, it's funny. So one comment about what you do, how you go right to the head sales manager and you negotiate with them, you don't deal with salespeople. That's actually that's actually smart on your part, and it's it's going to be easier to negotiate with the head sales manager than a salesperson. And I'll, I'll share with you why. And this is based on my experience, where kind of where I worked, and then some of the dealerships I'm familiar with in, in the area that I was I was in at the time. Uh, but most managers were very very average car salespeople that were promoted up. They were you know they might have had an understanding for the numbers, but they weren't great car salespeople. You know, so they right, they would right. typically get promoted up to management. And the best salespeople, either A, wouldn't, they'd, they'd get overlooked for management because they wouldn't want to lose the production on the floor, or B, they realize that they could actually make more money selling the cars than, than being a manager and not have the responsibility. So, so uh, when you deal with those head sales managers, stereotypically speaking, you're probably working with a, a weaker negotiator, even though they're supposed to be the stronger closer to come rescue the, uh, the salesperson. But um, I, I had a, di- I had a bit of a different gig, man. Honestly, I was a, I was the internet guy. So I actually, I was, I was, uh, prohibited from actually talking to people that physically came to the lot just to look at cars. Like that was, that was just the, the other salespeople's job. So I had a pretty tough gig because like people were shopping me online against not their three local dealers, but all over the country, you know, and oh, wow. they would come in and they'd say, this is the price you have to do. And, and I would get this. And there's, you know, there's still more so back then, not as much today, but some deceptive advertising practices where people would put fake prices in the, in the ad online or in the paper just to get people into the door. And then all that car just sold. Here's another one just like, and they try to upsell. Well, I would get all these fake price ads sent to me that I have to compete against and I have to bring people in. So I actually, this is the way that I viewed it, John. I actually looked at it like I was running my own business because I was commission only. So I didn't necessarily care 
how much money I made per deal. I cared how much money I made per time invested in the deal. So I looked at my, my time as units of inventory. So I would just tell people, listen, I don't need to make a lot of money on you. I basically want to, there's a price that I want to get and there's a price that you want to get. And reality is there's somewhere in between that need that, that we're willing to agree on. Let's just get to this point as quickly as possible. Make this, you know, this process as painless as possible, you know, or as enjoyable as possible for you. So you're making a good decision and then, you know, we'll just get at it. And I, and I honestly did that so well that I would actually have great, you know, volume quantity numbers, but I would also still have decent kind of quality numbers of how much margin we were making per unit sold. So, um, yeah, that's smart. That's a smart you know, way to go about it. And, but I will say some, some funny tactics because people would come in and they would be like, this is the price that I got from New York city. And I'm like, well, one, you know, you're five hours from New York city. So you, do you really want to invest 10 hours of your time going down there, hoping that the car is still <laughs> there, you know, and I can tell you right now, like it's, it's a fake ad. Like I, I know what this is, but you know, they would, they were relentless and they just would, would not, you know, you know, uh, concede. And I'd be like, you know what, here on the other side of this paper, I got you a price on this car. It's literally next to nothing. And, uh, so be, be prepared. And I would flip it over. And on the other side of the piece of paper, the word nothing would be written out. And then their, their price would be there. And I'm like, look, this price is next to nothing in a very literal sense. Just to inject some humor into it, most people kind of right, got right. it, um, and it was a way to kind of bring some lightheartedness to a, what is otherwise a, a traditionally tense situation. Um, but there were times that people did not find that funny whatsoever, and they stormed out. And <laughs> you know, and I just I always battled with management. They were like, "You're letting your customer go," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not going to force them to buy today." And and you know what? I had the best retention, like return rate. Like they, they looked, they tracked everyone's numbers and most people, if they, if most traditional salespeople, if they let people walk out the door, they might only get 10 or 15% of them to come back. I was getting 80 to 90% to come back and buy from me. And wow. you know, to kind of close the loop as to why, and this is kind of who I, part of who I am and, and why I think I've done okay in business is that I focused on telling people, I'm going to give you all the information that you need to make a smart buying decision. And you can go out and you can use that information to buy a car anywhere. I just hope that when it's time to actually buy the car, you think of me. And that's what I would do. And I would educate people how to buy a car the right way, understanding that they are going to have to, you know, pay something that's going to, so the dealership is going to have to make some money on it because, you know, people won't work for free, you know, and if you want to get taken care of, so I'd educate them to all these nuances, you know, and I would tell them, you know, here, let me tell you what warranties actually really cost. So, you know, what a good price on a warranty is and what not to buy. Let me, and I would just, I'd break it all down for them and I would teach them how to buy a car the right way. You know what, John, as it turned out, people really like that sort of transparency and they bought a lot of cars from me. And uh, yeah, I mean, and that's that's true, you know, across the board. It's like the consumer, uh, you obviously know, like everyone's got to make a profit, right? You're not going to you, you got to pay something, but you don't want to get screwed. So if you educate, if you give information for free, it's like and you're completely transparent about it. You're going to foster that trust. And then the sale is going to happen. Yeah. And, and my dealership, I mean, they hated it, you know, and that's part of the reason why I didn't like the environment. They were like, that's not how we do it. You're supposed to hit them with a really high number and then scrape them off the ceiling and all these things. And it's like, I don't want to play that game. Like this is already a really nerve wracking time for people to be spending this kind of money. And frankly, a lot of people are spending out of their element. Like they can't even afford what they're coming in to buy, you know, and I'm not going to scrape them off the ceiling and, and then heaven forbid, they just accept the first offer that I put there because they don't know how to dance. Like I just, I couldn't get behind that. Like I, I just physically could not screw people over. And in the long run, I, I think I helped a lot of people make some good buying decisions, buy a good product with Toyota. And my numbers always justified out. Like I, you know, they would, the management would be mad at me for doing it that way. But I would say, listen, I've sold just as many units as anyone else in here. And I also have the, you know, the gross margin volume as well. So like, you really can't argue with the way that I'm doing it, you know, and they, they couldn't, right. but. Um, yeah, if there's anything to be learned, from this conversation is do not accept the first offer at a dealership. Never. Oh ne my God. Never, no. ever, ever never. accept the first offer. Nope. Um, okay. So let's talk about spin gig. Yeah. Uh, really. So how, how did the, how did it, how did it come about? How did the idea come? How did you build it? Just kind of give us yeah. a breakdown. So we, so with employment solutions, we, we acquired a company in New York city that did a lot of hospitality staffing and I saw, 
kind of the old fashioned way that it was done. And I, I quickly recognized that a lot of it could be automated with software. There was a lot of time consuming steps that didn't add a lot of value to the process, but they were necessary based on, you know, traditional methods. And, you know, in today's age of technology, I realized that there was a way that we could actually automate a lot of that through software. I also recognized the high attrition rate, you know, of the hospitality industry is always north of 70%. You know, most places are struggling to find or keep up with their staffing levels. And I, uh, I also recognized the, the we're moving towards the gig economy, you know? So I saw those things come together and I said, hey, I wanna, you know, uh, take a swing at this. Uh, I stepped out, uh, you know, with another friend of mine and we, you know, contracted a, a really prestigious development firm in Boston to actually build the platform the way we wanted it. And we got everything working, you know, really well, streamlined. We did our beta tests in two different markets of different demographics just to kind of test out some theories. Uh, but at the end of the day, we just launched in, in New York City. And John, it is like, it's one of those things like the idea and the features are so, are so simple that I think people might sometimes underestimate it, you know, but it's, it right. really is as simple as, hey, if you need a line cook, like tomorrow or the next day, whether it be for one shift, a part-time job or a full-time job, all you do is you could just push a button, broadcast out, and it's going to go out to a massive database of just line cooks in your area, within whatever mile radius that you decide to select, it's only gonna ping those people via text message and email alert. And then those people can look at the job criteria and decide if they're interested. And if they are, they opt in and you are only looking at those ones. So there's no more scouring profiles, sourcing resumes, posting jobs, hoping that the right person applies or sees it. Like, you know, you just don't have to wait for all those two ships to, to kind of, you know, pass in the night. Like you just, it's super efficient, straight to the point. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're seeing customers broadcast out jobs. People are getting pinged, opting into jobs, you know, placements happening. So, uh, it's working and we're, like I said, we're, we're pretty excited about, you know, the future of it. Nice. And so how did you build the database of like the line cooks, the waiters, the waitresses? Yeah. So obviously, you know, calling on my 12 years of experience in the recruiting industry, you know, we use a lot of the traditional recruiting methods to build that database. Uh, we also, you know, we basically use the job board posting, we use, you know, uh, kind of a recruiting network of physical resources that, you know, might be job centers in certain markets, you know, and then we also do, you know, social recruiting and use digital resources to recruit. So it's basically a whole recruiting strategy to get these people to sign up and create profiles uh, that basically are looking for work. And nice, nice. Really, the value that we're bringing is to say, hey, you know, we're not just a job board that's bringing you a medium to post on that hopefully the right people see it. Like we're physically bringing a populated database of, of good candidates to the employer. So like that's like that's the difference. Like we wanted to bring them all the value to them to make it as easy as possible for them. Nice. And now is um, so do you solely own this or does employment solutions have a piece of it? How does how does that work out? Or do you just start this and this is your own deal? No. So uh, so I actually there's a there's a few owners on the, the cap table, if you will. So uh, I'm one of the, the lead partners. My other partner, John, is uh, one of the lead partners. And then we have, you know, equity that's given out on some uh, equity incentive plans for some of the key employees uh, that are helping us grow. And then also we do have a, a couple angel investors that came in uh, as well. And that's how the, the ownership is, is situated right now. We are, we're in the process. I mean, we're, we're in market, we're getting sales and validating. So we're probably close to going out and raising a another round of investment to kind of fuel growth, which will obviously change the ownership dynamic a little bit, but it's predominantly owned by myself and, and my partner, John, right now. Nice. And so where, where are you running this out of? Are you running it out of Florida or New York? So we are exclusively in market in New York City. I have a VP of operations that's in market that's leading the sales side of this. Uh, myself, I'm leading the recruiting side of it. So I'm the one that gets all the talent into the database. He's the one that goes and markets the database to our customers. And then my CTO is, a, is actually also an equity partner. He's a great friend of mine uh, and, a, and a partner of mine with Employment Solutions as well. And he basically runs the development out of uh, upstate New York. Nice, nice, awesome. Okay, so let's talk about your work with Binghamton University, the incubator. So did they come to you when they wanted to start up this incubator? 
They did. Yeah, I'd actually, I had actually, I had a relationship with the Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation Partnerships there that they kind of managed the entrepreneurial education and technology transfer for the university. Uh, and they knew that I was sort of in a, a I guess maybe a, a, a place of, of uh, maybe discontentment or I was about to take like a hiatus from Employment Solutions and I was kind of moving out of an operational role into more of a board role. And they saw this and they were like, hey, well, what are you going to do with your time? Because you're not one to sit idle. And and I expressed, I'm like, hey, I'm actually thinking about creating my own. Uh, and I didn't know their plans at the time when I said this. I was like, I was going to create my own private incubator. Like, I want to help startups. Like, I love that world. I've really studied it. And I'm thinking about buying some real estate, building out, a you know, an accelerator or an incubator program and recruiting companies and help mentor them and, and connect them to capital. And And they were like, wow, that's pretty interesting. Would you like to do it at a lot bigger scale? And I was like tell me more. And they shared with me their vision that came from, you know, President Harvey Stanger, who is an incredible man. Uh, he's an incredible leader for that university. Uh, he's done tremendous, tremendous uh, things for that that community and the university. Um, he They shared his vision for what business incubation would look like. And they asked if I would, you know, join the team and help bring that real world entrepreneur boots on ground kind of credibility to the program so it wasn't viewed as a purely academic, you know, exercise. And so they reached out, we had a conversation and it seemed like they were willing to to make it work around myself and my priorities of my family and my other businesses and uh and I could give them what they needed to to get them headed in the right direction. So um yeah, they did they sought after they I guess they sought me out. Great. So what um if you had to give a piece of advice to the youth of America, uh, so let's just say, you know, gra maybe graduate, um, you know, just graduated from college um, or, or kind of out in the world in, the, in their early 20s, what, what piece of advice would you give to them? Huh. Yeah, I, the biggest piece of advice that I would give to somebody that might be just out of college or just kind of starting their professional career is that you don't have to make your lifetime career in your first five to 10 years out of college. Like, like you, there's this, there's this big emphasis on graduate school, latch on in a company. And then just so you can, you know, do that whole, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of work, you know, to before you can retire. But I, I don't think that that's necessary. Like, I think that if you are a youth and you have skill sets or you have passions or you have things that you want to pursue, like, I think it's a pretty good time to do it. Like, I think that if you, you know, say, Hey, you know, what? I'm, I'm really excited. I'd like to do something with this passion or this interest, but I'm going to wait until I have a career and money to do it. I think eventually like that, that passion, that dream will subside, you know, and then mediocrity will take its place. So, you know, kind of what I tell people, John, is that I look at my own life, and I in in no way saying that my life is the the pattern or the right way. I'm just it's it's just my life and that's the platform that I speak from. But I graduated high school, you know, 17 years old, and I floundered. I squandered the next 10 years of my life. Like I didn't really start taking myself seriously or even start believing that, you know, I could really have a major impact or even perform on a new level until I was in my late 20s. Like so, like a decade had gone by from when I graduated high school. And I had, you know, some dead end jobs, you know, the car sales thing. And it just, it wasn't until I said, no, I want something more and I'm going to be more disciplined and focus on it. So I'm going to go after it. I'm going to take a swing on this entrepreneur thing and try to be in business. Huge risk. You know, I didn't have a massive nest egg. I hadn't been working in the workforce for, you know, 20, 30 years and have big retirement set up like that. I wasn't in, a, in the financial position where I could be taking massive risks, but I didn't let that dissuade me. You know, I basically said, I squandered 10 years and now I'm going to make a go at this. And I'll tell you what, you know, now I'm kind of 12 years into that piece. So it's been 22 years since I've graduated or coming up on 22 years since I've graduated high school. And, you know, I'm in a really good place in business, you know, and that's because I was willing to, to, to kind of bet on myself. So if I had a conversation with someone that was in that situation, just graduating college is bet on yourself. Go, don't, don't think you need to find your lifelong career within the first five to 10 years. Like, do something really interesting. Do something out in left field. Do something that you think you might be really, really passionate about that you can make some money at. And do everything you can to make a go of it. 
You know what? And if it doesn't work out in five to 10 years, like you're going to be just fine. Like you likely have a degree that you can fall back on. You likely have made some contacts that will basically help you land on your feet. Like, and you're going to be okay, you know? And so that's, I guess that's it. Like just bet on yourself and, and don't think you need to do the status quo thing that everyone else is doing. Like it's okay, you know, take a left turn when everyone's going right, you know? Okay, great. And then what would you say your biggest life lesson that you've learned from, you know, working at employment solutions, starting um, multiple companies, spin gig, uh, starting up this, uh, this incubator, like what, what has, you know, all of that, quote unquote, work experience, you know, what have you gleaned from that? Hmm. What have I? It's a very, it's a very open-ended question. Yeah. No. I, I, I totally feel that. And uh, the open-ended answer that I want to give is that, and I don't. I'm going to expound on this naturally. I mean, we're an hour into this, so you know that I expound on things. But uh, is is it's okay to be yourself? You know, I'll say that. You know, when I started out with employment solutions and even before that when i was kind of in these dead-end jobs and kind of squandering the first 10 years of my professional career um you know i had this belief of what i needed to be right and and i think that that's i think that we we talked about that earlier like we think that you know we we let, we need to be validated by by externally you know external validation and i had this belief of what i needed to be and i tried to be that in order to be validated uh and then I would honestly, I would get a little bit more success. I would get a little bit more success and I would feel good about it. But then I realized something, I, I noticed something happening, John, is that the more success that I had, the more comfortable I was being myself, yet the more I was willing to just be myself and actually speak my mind and share my original opinions and make my original contributions to whatever I was pouring myself into, kind of the more respected that I was and, and kind of you know, the more supported I was and, you know, the more, you know, an audience or following would take notice and say, wow, this is a guy that's doing something. And I realized that it wasn't any of the success that I was having. Maybe I had a small percentage to play, but the success that I was having actually had less of a percentage of impact than just the fact that I was being authentic, you know? So right. I think there's a, I think that most people have this good, authentic person within them, that good, genuine person of who they really are. And they're afraid to let it out because they feel like they need to be validated because that person that they are doesn't match the societal lens that they might be viewing it through. And I think if they just could get really comfortable in their own skin and, and share their own opinions and make their own impact, that I think that, you know, they would probably feel a lot more comfortable, a lot happier. And I think that success would just follow them. I really believe that. So um, I think that's what I've learned through Employment Solutions and Spin Gig and, and working with Binghamton University is that the more that I'm myself and the more that I, I offer kind of an authentic, original uh, version of me, kind of the, the better I feel and, and the better impact I have. Yeah, I think that I think that's great advice. You know, we all have a tendency to, you know, act in a certain way or to put on different masks. And what really kind of, you know, really kind of works is just being your authentic self and, and, and speaking your truth to the world. And that what, that's what really gains traction, you know, not only in business, but life in general. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like the way I act around my kids, you know, there's, there's no pretense, there's no acting. It's, it's me. It's who I am. And, and I'm sure you're, you're the same way. Okay, Dan, well, thank you so much. Uh, we've, we've been on for a little bit over an hour, so I'm going to wrap this up. How can everyone, how can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, you can go, you know, give us your website for Spin Gig, uh, Employment Solutions, all that good stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. So to, to connect with me personally, you know, I, I'm certainly, I'm open to that. Uh, probably the two mediums that I'm most receptive on these days are Instagram you know, at DT Mori and also LinkedIn, you know, linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Mori. Uh, I believe that's the, the URL for that. And, but as far as a, how they can connect with me a company, if, if, if this has inspired somebody to say, Hey, I want to take my career to another level, or I want to explore different opportunities, you know, and they want to, you know, touch base with a recruiter and, and maybe see what opportunities are out there. Like, I'm happy to connect with Employment Solutions. You know, we, we do place people nationally and they can check us out at employmentsolutions-ny.com. 
Uh, and then if, if any of your listeners are in the New York City area and they are either part of the hiring chain for food and beverage, you know, hotels, bars, restaurants, and they're looking to, you know, really connect with good people, definitely sign up at spingig.com. And on the flip side, like if, if they work in hospitality, which 10% of the workforce does, uh, and they're looking for their next gig, whether it be full-time, part-time, or shift work, you know, go create a profile at spingig.com and you know, get yourself in there and start getting notifications. And that's really, you know, kind of the, the best way to, to connect with me. Um, one, one shout out I want to do just because I'm grateful for this person. Uh, but the person that put you and I in touch, uh, Christine Marchuska, you know, she really has been a, a, a great connector at the Binghamton University. She's really opened up her network and, and helped other companies out. And she's connected a lot of people like you and I. And, you know, if not for her, uh, you and I wouldn't be here talking today. So um, I definitely uh, appreciate, you know, Christine's helping out with that and, and all the work that she's doing, too, because she's doing some pretty cool things. Yes, uh, Christine is a great human being. Uh, she's uh, and she did connect us. Yeah, so thank you very much, Christine. Uh, okay, all right, Dan. Well, thank you so much, and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Working Experience. Take care. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app, the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john, J-O-H-N, at onecirclemedia.com or DM me on Instagram at John Brancaccio, J-O-H-N-B-R-A-N-C-A-C-C-I-O. I'd love to hear from you. And thanks again for listening to another episode of The Working Experience.